I was mad this morning because no uh, publication had covered the second survivor, minor survivor that stepped forward to um, to sue Twitter. So I was Daily Caller did today. Did the Daily Caller did or the Daily Wire? I want to say it was Daily Caller. Ooh, let me check. Well, because I was on there, took us. Every journalist, trust me, these journalists know. They know what it is with me. I'm a beast. <laughs> I was on them all weekend. I started on Friday and just would not let them let up with them. They're like, oh, this girl's annoying. But I'm an advocate. I'm an activist. You know what I mean? I'm crazy. So the, so there's, the advocate me is very strong. Like, I'm like, mm-hmm. but the survivor me is sometimes still uh, weak. Uh, just sometimes, you know, um, I think you're right. It was the daily wire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wasn't giving them a choice. I was like, you're writing about this today. <laughs> I'm like, if you don't write it, I'm gonna have, you know, I'm crazy. I like it though. <laughs> That's how you get it done. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Chatting with Candace. I'm your host, Candace Horvath. Before we get started on this week's episode, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to chattingwithcandace.com and click that little link that says buy me coffee or the Patreon account. Both things help me out a ton. Um, another simple way to support the podcast is simply by leaving a five-star review and a comment, sharing it with a friend. All of those things help with the algorithm. Um, so I really appreciate it. This week, I want to give a shout out to Patreon users um, X the River and Jap Groot. Thank you so much for being Patreon members. It really means a lot to me. Um, all very exciting stuff. And the last shout out that we are going to do is going to be to Martin F. Thank you for buying me a cup of coffee. You rock. I really appreciate it. Um, so this week's episode is going to be a little bit heavier. It's something that... Um, I really care about. So we are having Eliza Blue on the podcast. Eliza Blue is a human trafficking um, survivor, and she's also now an advocate. She does a lot of work, um, I guess, trying to bring awareness, help survivors, and um, stop these atrocities from happening. So it's a serious conversation. We definitely have a little bit of fun, but it's a heavier topic. So I just wanted to give you that little precursor before we dive in. Um, I really appreciate it. And I do want to plug my friend's nonprofit. So if you do, um, this pulls at your heartstrings or it's something that you know, you, you feel a connection and you want to kind of help, you can go to justiceventures.org and in the donate button uh, box, you can type in ORC and that's for Operation Rescue Children. Um, all of the proceeds go to uh, helping children that are victims of trafficking or you can go to Child Rescue Coalition as well. That's one of my favorite nonprofits. So um, let's dive into this conversation. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to listen about something that's really important. So let's get to it. Well, I'm really glad um, that we got connected on Twitter. It was really funny because um, I think for some reason our worlds don't don't tend to meet. You know what I mean? Like you were like, "Oh, I'm you in the DMs." You were like, "I'm not um, anti-porn." I'm like, "Well, if you were, it's fine." Like I'm not opposed to talking to people that are. Right. Um, but for some reason, I have another girlfriend that's pretty vocal about being an advocate for um, specifically like people that were trafficked for sex work yeah, um, and specifically minors. And everyone's like, oh, you can't post that. And she's like, why not? It's something I care about. And I'm just trying to spread awareness to it. And for some reason, um, if you're in like my line of work or any other, you know, um, 
I guess like I don't, I hate the word sex work for porn, but that is what it is, I guess. Um, so I, I say willing adult entertainers. Right. I, I just, I think that there's a difference. I'm not judging. I think any, you know, adult can do what they want as long as they're not hurting anyone, all that whole disclaimer. But I just don't see why we also can't, you know, bring awareness to what I think is a very important subject. Yeah. Um, and I was really excited when I found out that you were actually a survivor because I've had um, a couple people on that were, that do a lot of work in that field. So I had uh, Carly Yost on who's the CEO of Child Rescue Coalition. They do amazing work. Um, And then I had Keith Wagner on, and he's also the founder of Operation Rescue Children. Mm -hmm. Um, So he works a lot with Underground Railroad and preparing um, like law enforcement to handle these kinds of situations and and save people. Um, But I haven't been able to talk to someone like you who's actually experienced it. And I feel like that's such a missing piece when it comes to this conversation is that there's actually humans behind this that are being affected, right? Yeah. Um, um, and it's not it's not political and it's not no. a myth. And unfortunately, I think with 2020, it was kind of a paradox because I've never seen it highlighted so much, right? We were talking about um, specifically a lot with uh, sex trafficking and, and child trafficking. But then also on the flip side, we were hearing that it's a myth. And then, so here's someone living, breathing, who's um, unfortunately had to go through through this hell. So yeah. thank you so much for giving me your time. Well, thank you for having me. Um, there's already a lot to unpack there. Um, so I definitely make a difference. Like I definitely try to differentiate between willing adult entertainers. So that would be anybody that's doing willing adult pornography or, you know, cam, cam, I don't want to say cam girling because guys can do it too, right? Mm-hmm. So camming, um, you know, being... Uh, you know, an exotic dancer, something of that nature, you know, fetishes. Uh, that's a, And then there is a willing adult sex work, right? Mm-hmm. So that would be where you're actually having sex or doing something sexual in person. Mm-hmm. And then um, there's survival sex. Survival sex is where you're uh, doing, you know, you're having sex for uh, food, clothes, medicine, shelter, and then there's human trafficking. So I always like to differentiate because there is a huge difference. And uh, one thing that's been a little bit unique about my specific message is that I'm not uh, anti-willing adult pornography, and I'm actually not even willing adult sex work. To me, when you start lumping in all that stuff, it uh, muddies the waters a lot, right? Oh, yeah. So I keep it solely to because I firmly believe that folks can do that willingly and enjoy mm-hmm. their job. And I don't necessarily think that someone has to come from... a household or abuse or trauma or be a survivor like me to Mm -hmm. do that type of work. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's been a little bit unique. Uh, I've had a lot of pushback from all sides. I could care less. Um, That's just how I see things. Um, Mm -hmm. As far as being a, oh, in our rescue, oh, you are, we did, I did a cool event with them in early December in, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, we did the longest Tesla car parade, the longest electric car parade for Guinness Book of World Records, and we raised $10,000 for them. And I was so excited that in the middle of a pandemic, we still figured out a way to raise money for those kids. So they're a really cool organization. But yeah, being a survivor, it's kind of, um, you know, I don't know. It's it's weird because um, I didn't realize until I started talking about things on Twitter how much people wanted to know a survivor, get to talk to a survivor. Um, I didn't realize that there was a gap there. There are a lot of public survivor leaders. Um, 
And, and I didn't realize that folks wanted to know more, like they wanted to hear from a survivor. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay. So then I started kind of talking about it a lot where we ran into difficulty in 2020 uh, was that uh, folks were not sticking to the facts, right? They were, mm-hmm. um, and they were also hyper-focused on uh, the elites or things that we can't change and mm-hmm. um, really going down rabbit holes. So I was really trying very hard to navigate that conversation and just stick to the facts. Do we have enough facts out there? The human trafficking hotline has been collecting statistics and data for over 10 years. So uh, we don't need to go down the rabbit hole or like do, you know what I mean? It doesn't need to be embellished. There's no no extra sauce. We don't need any extra (laughs) sauce on it, right? Like it's bad enough on its own. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that the Epstein situation really uh, woke a lot of people up. I'm grateful to those survivors. I consider some of them very close personal friends and colleagues, but we can't stop the conversation there. You know what I mean? We can't stop the conversation there. Um, one area I have had a little bit of pushback is, uh, you know, willing adult entertainers really sometimes, okay, I've had a lot of love from some willing adult entertainers, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of love. Like I've had mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, Willing adult entertainers speak out and say, yeah, we don't want this child sexual abuse material. We don't want this human trafficking in our, uh, like in our industry. We don't want it affiliated with our brand. Mm -hmm. I feel like what it does when we talk about willing adult entertainment is what it does is it muddies the water for willing adult entertainers as well. You don't want to be, I mean, willing adult entertainers don't want that affiliated with their brand. Do you think that that's intentional when people do that? Or do you think it's ignorance? Well, I try not to speak for other people. Um, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think that um, folks are difficult, have a difficult time processing nuance. Mm. Um, they have a difficult time understanding the crime. They try to lump everything all in together. It's not that simple. It's just not. Human trafficking exists where pornography is illegal. Child sexual abuse material exists where willing adult pornography is, is illegal. So, uh, and human trafficking does as well. In fact, I would go a step further and say that in areas where pornography is illegal, uh, human trafficking is worse. North Korea. Oh, so I'm not familiar with a ton of the statistics. I was trying to um, refresh my mind because mm-hmm. I had Carly on when I first started the podcast. So it's it's been a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the listeners that maybe haven't listened to that episode, the last that I heard was a rough estimate between like 40 and 60 million people are currently being um, trafficked or are they're slaves, right? Like you're, you're, you have no freedoms. You're controlled by someone at the top, whether you're used for labor or sex, like those are the two main ones. I was really fascinated when I um, was looking up what web- website was it? The hotline statistics. Yeah. Um, they were saying that the number one industry was actually like massage parlors. And I had no idea because that's so in your face. It's, so above ground. I mean, it depends. So, okay, first, these statistics are really freaking hard to get. Mm-hmm. I mean, you either have to have a bust, right? You either have to okay. have a bust or survivors have to step forward. Mm-hmm. So right there, you're already at a disadvantage. Um, I think that what I've seen globally is that labor trafficking has more victims statistically than sex trafficking. Sex trafficking gets more, um, like more, um, 
I don't know, more buzz around it because it's more, uh, it seems more egregious, you know, mm-hmm. um, or it is, I mean, it's, a, it is, mm-hmm. I mean, especially when you're dealing with children, but, oh, yeah. but uh, you know, mas- some massage parlors have human trafficking, some nail shops have human trafficking, some mm-hmm. of our food, you know, is picked by labor trafficking victims. My phone was probably made by a victim of human trafficking. Um, so it's, it's a lot of places we're not necessarily looking for it, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, I think when people say those numbers, it's so alarming that you think that they're inflated or you think that one of the more um, frustrating things that I saw on Twitter when everything was starting to get highlighted was everyone was associating this with QAnon. And I was like, it's not the same. Like one is very real and one, again, is this embellished version that just wanted to get attention. And I don't really try to go into that hole too much, but um, for some reason they got linked up and then it became a political issue. And it's like, well, it's not that bad. Or um, these numbers are inflated or people like you don't exist or Jeff, you know, the Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein thing went, you know, under the radar for so long and people were trying to come out earlier and they're like, there's no way he's so elite. He's a high profile figure. Um, but it is, it's happening right in front of you. So I guess, do, do, can we get into your story a little bit or, uh, or not? I'm not familiar yeah. with it. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, and yeah. just to, just sorry, just to backtrack a little bit, you know, I, I was really focused on speaking out against QAnon. I, I just didn't find it very helpful. Um, mm-hmm. I found myself on the receiving end of some of their attacks because I wasn't willing to toe the line. Um, there are horrible people on all sides and to anyone, you know, I, it didn't need to be political. It doesn't need to be about that. You know, I try to reach out to politicians on both sides. I try to reach out to journalists on all sides. You know, I'm. So, it's like such a problem. We don't need to put the extra stuff on it. You know, just how you were saying. But I, you know, I did an interview with NBC about it. Um, I was really very vocal because I wasn't understanding why the conversation was shifting from something that we have tangible evidence on to something that, I mean, in my mind, I feel like the QAnon thing was maybe some type of weird psyop or something. Like that was just some weird stuff. And that was something in the survivor space we never saw coming. You know what I mean? It, we just never saw that one coming. That, that kind of derailed the conversation a lot too. Derailed right? the so. conversation, wasn't helpful. Do I think that some folks that believe in QAnon have been helpful? Yes, they're few and far between. That, that was my experience. Mm-hmm. And I would love to stand corrected. Um, so my story, <laughs> I would love to stand corrected. But um, so, you know, but on the flip side, though, you know, uh, even though I was on the receiving end of attacks, even though I thought they weren't helpful, even though I felt like they muddied the water, I still uh, fought for their freedom to say it. I wish, you know, I wasn't very comfortable when they were removed from, you know, standard social media platforms. In my mind, that forces them more underground, uh, radicalizing them. Um, This is a problem we have, you know, Mm -hmm. is when we remove these folks that are maybe already a little um, desperate on the edge, they feel unheard, uh, really it gives them an opportunity to be further radicalized. You know, we see the same things with like terrorists, uh, possible terrorists you know, white supremacy, things like that. Um, 
I just don't like it to see see it get pushed. You know, then they're in a their own bubble where they're only talking to people like them, and it's just further right. further radicalization. So that's one thing I get scared of. Um, so my story, <laughs> uh, my story, um, girl, I'm gonna get you banned off YouTube. <laughs> no. I'm bringing up all the horrible words like. Ugh. Um, I've, had pretty, I've had some pretty outrageous people. I think we're, we'll be good. I watched some of your podcasts over the weekend. You have some great guests. I loved Thank it, you. actually. Thank I love um, just really good topics. It was it was really fun uh, just to hear the different just different topics. It was good. I was really excited about it. Um, so my story, uh, I was I was homeschooled. So mm-hmm. I was homeschooled and. Um, I was groomed at age 15. I went to a concert, the Vans Warped Tour in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a driver's permit. So like I went, you know, <laughs> I had a driver's permit, thought I was cool, went to the Vans Warped Tour and met a photographer there. And the photographer spent uh, five, five, uh, two years grooming me. I don't know where five came from. 15 was probably in my head. But yeah, two years grooming me. I actually went to Los Angeles to do a photo shoot. Uh, with the photographer. And so everything sort of seemed pretty legit. Um, I moved to Los Angeles before I turned 18. Mm-hmm. And just barely because I graduated early because I was homeschooled. And uh, with a few days of being there, you know, I was promised the world, you know, I was promised I was going to be a star. And, uh, and my naivete uh, really, really didn't work in my favor in this case. And uh, I was sex trafficked right away. I was, you know, they said it started with a couple beers, went to drugs. I was trying to fit in, be cool. I wanted to impress everybody, show everybody, you know, that I was cool, that I could fit in. And um, and once I was on the drugs, then I was sold. Whoa. Okay. So the concept of selling a human to me like I can't even begin to break that down. Um, And I'm sure probably a lot of listeners can't either. It just seems like it it only exists in movies. So how do you sell a person? Like in your, when we're talking about your story, like how were you sold? Like how does that transaction happen? Well, I wasn't necessarily (laughs) consulted, Um, but you know, um, I tried to tell folks, and this is one thing I definitely had a difficult time once, I became an advocate, just sort of unpacking a lot of why it happens. Um, you know, in that time, I was not seen as a human being. I was solely seen as an object. Um, mm-hmm. It would be the equivalent if I said to you, hey, girl, you want to buy this microphone? You know, um, it was sold like a like a product. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I try not to, you know, these are folks that don't see humans as humans. They see them as, you know, along the lines of, you know, illegal drugs, illegal guns, illegal oil, seen the same way. It's solely just, um, you know, for that, I, you know, and as far as abusers go, you know, I definitely look at them as folks that are not dealing within the same framework of, of reality that we are. You know, so and it's not like this is anything new, you know, unfortunately, uh, slavery, forced labor, you know, non-consensual sex. These are things we've dealt with for a very long time. 
Right. And uh, same with child marriage. You know, child marriage isn't illegal everywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm really grateful that I got out. Um, It is. How does that happen? How do how are you able to get out? Because it seems at least, you know, in the movies that you see or, you know, the stereotyped uh, version of all of these is that they hook the, the girls or the men on drugs so that you're kind of in this helpless state. And then you're also, so you're not able to get out. Yeah. Um, so I always let folks know that when a victim becomes a liability, they're disposable as well. Um, mm-hmm. I overdosed on drugs. I was really difficult to deal with. Uh, my difficulty ke- definitely kept me alive a lot. Uh, I was always <laughs> a little punk rock. <laughs> I was always a little punk rock. I was really difficult to deal with, but I did overdose on drugs and I was left for dead. I'm grateful that I was left for dead mm-hmm. uh, because I wouldn't have survived. I went to Cedar sinai um, and came back home, detoxed and didn't really talk about what happened. Unfortunately, um, that was the first time. The second time, once that initial trauma was there, and this isn't rare. So like to anybody that's listening, this isn't rare. Um, You know, I sort of liken it to returning to a domestic violence situation. Um, You know, we, you know, some of us have had these friends. We're like, why do they keep going back? Why do they keep going back? It's very similar um, in this way. I actually willingly returned later on in life to, um, that lifestyle. Um, I had a different, uh, trafficker this time. Um, and I just feel like that initial, you know, I didn't feel like I was worth anything more than that lifestyle. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Oh yeah, it does. Yeah. I just didn't think I I had much else to offer. I didn't know. I didn't, I, I mean, brutal honesty, this is going to sound wild. Like I didn't even feel smart or worthy of really speaking in public or out loud until, um, well into 2020. Wow. Yeah. So when you returned to it, um, you essentially, like you ended up becoming like a prostitute with like a pimp in that kind of situation, or was it like the same people that had initially uh, trafficked you? Different people. It was years later. Um, You know, I had gotten, I had decided that I wanted to, well, first I wanted to be a cocktail server. (laughs) First, I wanted to be a cocktail server at a gentleman's club. Uh I had been working, you know, VIP hosts and stuff like that. And, uh, and so I had like, after my first experience, like I went on to live a kind of decent life. Like I had a Mm -hmm. domestic violence situation and, you know, in, in a relationship, but, you know, other than that, I had had a pretty decent life, but that initial trauma was a lot. It's like, I never really dealt with it. I never really did the work, you know, or really even was really even willing to address that that even happened. You know what I mean? Also, I like to remember, remind people too, that like, Now we have words to put to it. Like the year that I was trafficked as a teenager was right around the time that we had our first laws in the United States about human trafficking at all. We weren't really talking about it. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like now we talk about it. Like before we weren't really talking about it. Um, So I went to go uh, be a cocktail server at a gentleman's club. They said, well, let you be a server here. Um, But... First, you have to audition to dance. I did. It was great. It was great money. That's why I can differentiate between willing adults, entertainer. At that time, I consider myself a willing adult entertainer. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't being trafficked. Unfortunately, um, 
I hit a financial skids because I was new to that lifestyle. I didn't know that the money would ebb and flow. I thought it would always be like that. Well, my lifestyle had uh, leveled up to that, you know, so I needed more. And in order, and you know, somebody catches you right when you're vulnerable and they sell you the dream. And then I fell right back into it again. Mm-hmm. I fell right back into it again. And my second abuser was violent. That was a difference. My second abuse, I guess they were probably both. I think before I was a little bit more docile when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. um, they didn't have to do too much to keep me at bay. The second one was a little bit more violent. Like your handler? He was a trafficker. Trafficker. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So I think that's an important thing to touch on is, is definitions. And a lot of people, if you don't come from any experience, whether it's from like the adult entertainment space or sex work um, or, you know, trafficking, if you're not involved in those, all of these things kind of can seem like they can intertwine or maybe like the definition can um, move from one to another. So what would you say is like the difference between like a, a handler or a trafficker, are they the same thing or is it just like a different word or, and I guess what's the difference between trap being trafficked as an adult versus um, I guess someone who just wants to, to be in sex work? Yeah. So first let's start with children under no circumstances uh, can children consent to mm-hmm. a selling sex. So uh, under all circumstances, if a child has sold sex, uh, they are under United States law, a human trafficking victim. So, so a child cannot consent to selling sex, right? A child cannot have uh, child sexual abuse material or child pornography, uh, child sexual exploitation material. Under no circumstances is this good or legal. Um, so that's first and foremost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then anyone over the age of 18, uh, well, it depends. You know, there's there's willing adult entertainment, which is legal in the United States. Um, anything that involves force, fraud or coercion would be considered human trafficking. Revenge porn would fall in there as well. So mm-hmm. if someone records you without your consent, without your knowledge and um, posts it, distributes it whatsoever, that would be considered human trafficking. Okay. As far as a handler goes, I don't really know. Um, I don't want to, I don't know the answer to that question because um, I'm not necessarily in that world. So I don't want to say something um, yeah. wrong, you know, um, I guess it, I, I, when, when you said that, I'm thinking like, okay, if somebody's a manager at a strip club, would I? Oh, cons- no, I guess it could be used both ways. So it probably is important to differentiate. You know, like if someone's a manager, like if someone's a willing adult entertainer and they have an entertainment manager, I don't consider that, you know, because it Mm -hmm. is legal to have an an entertainment manager or, you know, Mm -hmm. PR, you know what I mean? (laughs) So, okay, I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, you know, I, I think that if force, fraud or coercion is involved, you know, that's where that's where it becomes a problem. Um, you know, what that looked like for me was like, you have to do this. You have a quota. You're not allowed to do, you know, uh, and I also wasn't in control of who I saw when, 
you know, what any any aspect of the situation and none of the money uh, was mine, but my basic needs were met. Okay. As an adult. Yeah. Do you find do you find that there's like a lack of empathy or sympathy when it comes to adults that are being trafficked? Because I kind of see that where it's like, oh, well, she's old enough to figure it out. And I don't think people can understand or maybe necessarily appreciate the complexities of these situations. And it's not, it's not that easy. It's not that simple. The majority of people that are in, that are victims of trafficking are over 18 or 18 or over. Mm -hmm. I think it's like, I want to say estimated out of that 60 million, it's like 20 ish million that are underage. Um, but again, I have it like, I'm not super up to date on the statistics and I don't think that they've honestly been really updated since uh, COVID either. Yeah. We're still kind of waiting to see. I mean, I've seen the early, the early ramifications of the, uh, of the lockdowns and everything were really horrible on human trafficking. Mm -hmm. Um, still kind of waiting to see the full picture, but, uh, do I think that, you know, I find that the part that's most difficult for folks to really um, understand is the coercive human trafficking. You know, the force, mm -hmm. you know, when people say sex slave, uh, mm -hmm. that force uh, human trafficking is easy for people to understand or maybe have sympathy for. Um, the coercive aspect is really difficult for folks to wrap their head around, like those trauma bonds. Like, I mean, I was in love with my abuser. So that's and I still have difficulty um, wanting to press charges. Um, and this is something that a lot of people don't talk about because they're so hyper focused on the force that they wouldn't understand that, like the whole time I pretty much you know, could have walked to the police department. You know what I mean? Like that part's really difficult for folks to understand. That's why I feel like letting people know it's, you know, it is similar to domestic violence in that way where you can just be, it's like you keep going back, even though it might not be healthy or mm -hmm. even, you know, sometimes maybe to uh, different addictions that folks have. It's like, it's not right. You know something in your gut, it's not right, but you just keep going back, even though there's a high potential that you could be harmed. So where does that relationship develop that aspect of it? Like, how do you start to feel um, like you love for your, for this predator, right? Like it's, that's, um, I think that is really hard for people that haven't experienced it to wrap their head around. But when you do compare it to, to, to domestic violence, I want to say on average, it takes uh, the victim nine times to actually leave, to not return. It took me um, a lot of times, mm -hmm. a lot of times to try to leave. Um, you know, it took me so many times I quit saying I'm done forever. I just mm -hmm. say, I just say I'm done today because uh, I don't want to look stupid and go back and see, you know, uh, you know, these abusers are master manipulators. They understand what your vulnerabilities are and they know how to play on you. It's mm -hmm. almost like folks, folks do understand a little bit like Stockholm syndrome. Right. Um, it is that, I mean, I was basically brainwashed and they're also really skilled at this, you know, um, 
I always say, you know, if these abusers put their their intelligence and their ability to get things done towards something good or powerful, you know, they get a lot done in this world. Um, but they don't. They want to do it a different way. And uh, that's it, it definitely had me in its grip. And, you know, I, I mean, I actually I, I actually feel like it might still a little bit just because I was challenged a couple months ago to um, to take some steps that would uh, get some justice for myself. And I turned it down. So, so when that happens, what's going on in your head? Like, what's that inner dialogue? Well, generally, so the uh, the advocate me is like super strong. I'm like a beast. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So like my life now, very strong beast, beast mode, savage, um, <laughs> <laughs> like no hold barred. I was mad this morning because no uh, publication had covered the second survivor, minor survivor that stepped forward to um, to sue Twitter. So I was... Daily Caller did today. Did the Daily Caller did or the Daily Wire? I want to say it was Daily Caller. Oh, let me check. Well, because I was on there, took us. Every journalist, trust me, these journalists know. They know what it is with me. I'm a beast. <laughs> I was on them all weekend. I started on Friday and did, would not let them let up with them. They're like, oh, this girl's annoying. But I'm an advocate. I'm an activist. You know what I mean? I'm crazy. So just, so there's, the advocate me is very strong. Like I'm like, mm-hmm. but the survivor me is sometimes still uh, weak. Uh, just sometimes, you know. Um, I think you're right. It was the Daily Wire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wasn't giving them a choice. I was like, you're writing about this today. <laughs> I'm like, if you don't write it, I'm gonna, you know, I'm crazy. I like it though. <laughs> That's how you get it done. But, you know, I think to myself, if that was my child, I would want someone to be talking about this. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't I have think that's what got me super involved with um, like my research hole was becoming a mom mm-hmm. and just realizing how real this is. I think we focus too much on it being an international problem and that it's not. But the statistics show we're the highest consumer of child uh child pornography. You got it. And um, I want to say, I wish I had these numbers at the top of my head. You guys can always go to uh, Child Rescue Coalition. They have a lot of statistics there, but most um, most victims know their abuser too. Yes. So it's not like this horror film where you just kind of get picked up by a stranger. Obviously that does happen, but most of the time this person works their way into your circle and gains your trust, gains your affection. And then like you're saying, sometimes it can be so manipulative that you end up creating this bond with the person, which is even scarier because you're, you know what I mean? Like you're saying right now that there was a chance for you to, to have done something that would have given you that sense of justice and you're still struggling with it, which is heartbreaking. Well, there's also other things too. Like, do I really want to go through that? And there's also a fear there that, uh, well, I, I think that they would kill me. I don't hesitate to think that I'm very vocal about that. Um, Every day I I firmly believe that my life is in danger because I'm a public survivor leader, the things I speak out against. um, And I know that my former abusers would kill me just for fun. Like if I did, if I did anything and and there's other steps too that would be worse than them killing me. If you get what I'm saying. And there's not, there's, 
so to me, it's like, we'll just lock these guys up. Like it seems so, it seems so simple. I know it's not, I'm not, not that ignorant, but I guess where do, do the complications come in to, to trapping these guys? Like I, I, if you watch, um, or go to like a lot of those nonprofits, they do, they on the private sector are probably doing just as much, if not more work than, um, the government sector when it comes to locking these guys up. Is there just too much like bureaucratical red tape or why is it not so easy when you have all of these women coming forward saying, this is what happened. He's right there. Go get him. You'd have to prove it, you know, so that would have to make it through a court of law due process. Um, and it's so backed up, you know, I, I've done sexual assault kits, never heard anything back. Um, you know, without that concrete evidence, uh, it would be hard to prove in a court of law. Um, it seems like a sting operation would be the the easiest, fastest, most tangible way to gain that evidence. So I'm weird about stings, you know, um, I'm definitely for stings that uh, trap abusers of minors. Uh, mm -hmm. The problem with stings that we deal with in when we start dealing with adults is that, you know, willing adult sex workers and victims of human trafficking get arrested as well. And it's kind of yeah, like, and that oh, doesn't make sense. This mm -hmm. is like, I mean, it's so horrible, you know, um, there's something else I want folks to know, too. And, and this is something I cannot get out. There you are. You just <laughs> pop back up. Yes. Because uh, I was, I didn't want to look at myself. Um, I, know, I hate when that happens. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, one of the most things, like disturbing things that's just seared in my brain and I cannot get rid of it is the fact that Gabriel Dance from the New York Times was told in his investigative journalism about this issue that the FBI and the LAPD cannot focus on anything other than anything, anyone younger than a toddler because the child sexual abuse material is so much. There's so much. They can't even focus on anyone that's not a toddler or younger. Mm -hmm. Like, so when it comes to adults, like it's kind of like the lowest on the pecking order you know, we need to definitely focus on the child sexual abuse, the child um, trafficking, labor and sex. You know, these are definitely the most egregious. I'm not saying that adults don't matter. We do. Mm -hmm. But dang, if we can't, I mean, this is a whole next generation that we're that's that's just lives are being ruined. If, and there's know. that ripple effect, too. Right. So, it's, yeah, it, it hurt people, hurt people. Yes. And. We're, I don't think that there's enough resources, like you said, to even catch everybody and save no. everybody, let alone heal everybody. Um, so I think that's a really cool thing that I'm seeing a lot of the nonprofits do in the private sector is they're um, allocating a certain amount of their budget for therapy after. Yes. So my friend with um, Operation Rescue Children, the first thing they do when they scoop up these um, these kids is they put them in a facility with professionals to make sure that they're, they can start healing their mind. 
from yeah. this trauma. And then with um, with Child Rescue Coalition, she has this really uh, bears and blankets program that she's doing. So immediately they're giving them something for comfort because they recognize the ripple effects of um, of the site, the mental abuse aspect of this. And it's obviously not to take away from the physical, but that's what lasts potentially the rest of your life. Yes. Um, and that's wildly expensive, but I think we definitely need to be focusing on it more. And I think uh, it was last year that even the like the Trump administration was giving more money for that to make sure that there were um, psychologists at these facilities when they're taking in these these victims. So I'm glad that we're starting to focus more on the on that part of the healing process of it. Because we're getting better at it. You know, that's like I like I was saying. Remember how I was saying like we just kind of are getting. We're just now kind of getting good at the aftercare the after aftercare um, and more programs, more funding, more knowledge about the crime, more, more um, knowledge about what works and serving survivors after they've had an opportunity to be free, um, meeting survivors where they're at. You know, that was one area I think that the movement was really struggling when uh, it's kind of like people get out and then it's like, okay, we're going to force you to, to heal the way we think you should heal. Now we're really just trying to meet survivors where they're at and um, just give them a trauma informed survivor led experience. And that means that they choose their own level of healing and what that looks like for them. Um, That's what's worked well for me. Uh, The force thing, like the kind of like, this is how you're going to heal did not work well for me. Um, for some survivors, that's great. They like that, like more structured vibe. Um, for me, it wasn't so much like that. So, so it's, it's, uh, it is pretty cool to see some big changes being made. I think that awareness for the issue has definitely increased. Um, and I think that the, so I, I think that we are headed in the right direction, uh, with that. I think that as far as what we're going to see globally, as far as fo- folks falling into this lifestyle, uh, is going to increase so much. I, this is not going away. Um, you know, for anyone out there with kids, please talk to your kids, please educate your kids on what can happen as far as being groomed online by a predator or, you know, being sold the dream by somebody pretending to be somebody else. You know, you don't you don't want your children have to go to those aftercare pro- programs. Trust me. Trust me. I mean, here I'm about to turn. Uh, hey, wait, I saw you posted your birthdays next month. Yeah. What day? May 29th. I'm the 21st. Oh, because you're a Gemini. Yeah. Well, Taurus, Gemini, cusp, but more Gemini. Okay. More Gemini. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Oh, I was yeah. going to ask your sign earlier in the podcast, and then I was like, my listener is going to roll their eyes if I ask them. <laughs> <laughs> All that mystical woo-woo. I love it. Can't get enough. Girl, I love being a Gemini. Mm-hmm. It makes it's me- good for this kind of thing, right? I think it's really good for anyone um, that becomes like a, a public figure or in entertainment. Um, I think it helps. So when it comes to, um, well, like your, your healing journey, what's helped you a lot? Cause I think, um, that's really important to touch on. Yeah. Um, so I was really struggling when I was struggling for a while, like I was not doing well, suicidal, uh, just actions and just things that were really just not attracting good, 
uh, lifestyle choices, not attracting good folks in my life that really, you know, my family was really consistent, really cared about me. They still do. But I was just not attracting people that have my best interests at heart. Um, I was really struggling with that. I was struggling with, you know, thoughts of suicide, suicidal ideation, anything you could possibly think of. Um, and what changed for me was uh, I stumbled across uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson. Some people like to roll their eyes, but this is just my story. I um, love that man. I found him by happenstance. I was looking for something else and just sort of stumbled across uh, one of his interviews and um, really connected. And that experience shifted all my focus. A big healing thing for me has been podcasts. Um, when I'm triggered, for lack of better terms, when I'm in a dark place, if my mind isn't, you know, if I'm hyper focused on something that couldn't be, that isn't helpful. Um, I found the podcast space, but it was really Dr. Jordan Peterson that really sort of made that, um, filled that gap and just listening to him, um, learning about history, um, you know, just starting to acquire some self-worth, doing esteemable acts and, uh, and, but really podcasts, it's been podcasts. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think. There's got to be um, like a huge, a huge like healing mechanism when you start to feel like a connection, even if it's just through listening to someone or reading their book. Because um, I would imagine that's very lonely and very isolating because you, it's hard unless you find those networks to find anyone that's maybe had those experiences. And then, like you said, you can very easily get into this place of unworthiness and this is all that I deserve. So that healing process probably takes a really long time. Um, so those are really attainable things, you know, that I think yeah, anyone can I, I went to a survivor safe house. Um, mm -hmm. I did go to a safe house the second time. So like when I left the second time, it was a little bit more dramatic, even more dramatic than the first time. Um, but I did go to Survivor Safe House. Um, that was good. Some seeds were planted there. It wasn't the right fit for me. I was mm -hmm. a little wild at the time. But um, but uh, but those seeds were planted. Those seeds of hope were planted. Also, when before the lockdown, I've also been a part of a sur survivor support group. All adults, you know, after aftercare, really awesome survivors, a part of that group um, where we could just be transparent, share a meal together and talk about what's going on. So there's there's a lot of different things too. It wasn't just, you know, Jordan Peterson, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I believe in God. Um, so that helps me out a lot, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I think spirituality is huge or religion is huge. And I, I, for some reason, they're both like dirty words right now. Like it's not cool to say that those are important parts of your life. But I think almost everyone, and I don't know, I think almost everyone, especially in our darkest moments, I think we know that there's something else there. there we want that connection mm -hmm. and we know that it's powerful. I don't know, maybe that's just me being, again, leaning into the mysticism and the woo-woo, but I think most of us feel that. And I think it can be so powerful in these moments. Um yeah, I'm. I, I mean, mean, I'm glad to see you have such a big platform, and that you. I was looking at looking you up on YouTube, and you've been talking to some really awesome people. So, um, when it comes for you, like, what's your mission with this? Like, what's your mission as as an advocate? Well, I stepped forward uh, and started tweeting about human trafficking in on like April second, twenty twenty, 
It will, I mean, that's when I really stepped forward to be a public survivor oh, wow. leader. So I've, it just happened just a year. And then I started doing my first podcast on, in uh, September, 2020. I was tweeting about human trafficking before April, but I, mm-hmm. I stepped forward as a public, like where with my name, my picture, everything there said, Hey, I'm a survivor. That was really like the real one. Um, and then I started doing podcasts in September and then I really kicked the podcast into high gear about five months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the podcasts have been great. Um, so that's been awesome. My goal is to serve as many survivors as possible at whatever I can do. Um, my goal is to keep my message pure and to not sell it. I did my, my tweeting style. My podcast style is not for sale. Um, this is not, I don't do it as a representative of any organization. This is just me out here, you know? Um, and that's been really helpful because I haven't had to toe the line or say anything or fit inside a box or fit a political agenda or what the hell, you know, whatever mm-hmm. else, you know, I can say whatever I think. Um, so I'm really excited, girl. I get to sit down with Bridget Fetacy this week. I love her. I know it's not public yet, but since this isn't live, I can exactly. say uh, I'm very excited. You know, um, I've been really blessed, you know, um, just had the opportunity and I have some really big podcast interviews coming up and um, that's something I never saw just like never saw coming, you know, Um, like I said, I never thought I had anything anybody wanted to hear, you know, (laughs) you have to remember, like, I mean, my former abuser was like, you're stupid. You aren't shit. You're, you're only worth your looks. You know, you, you have nothing anybody wants, you know, it's, so this is part of uh, being in an abusive relationship. This was grounded to my head. So it just means so much to me that different people um, are open and willing to hear it. Moving forward, I just want to keep keep that momentum going and just reach as many survivors as possible. Believe it or not, every time I do a big podcast, survivors step forward, reach out for healing. And the last time when I stepped forward, the last the last time really stepped forward, I saw a survivor on YouTube. That was the first time I ever even heard of human trafficking, what human trafficking was. I did not know up until I saw this survivor on YouTube what human trafficking was or that I even identified that way. She put words to my experience. I didn't even know. So if it wasn't for her being on YouTube, being so accessible, being available, I wouldn't have stepped forward. Now I've served survivors in six countries, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of survivors over the last handful of years I've served because I was an advocate before I was public. So it's just been the most um, amazing experience. I just want to keep the momentum going, but keep it pure. That's going to be the hard part. That's the confusing thing. So I heard that you at some point were censored on Twitter. Um, Which time? I don't understand how this is a controversial topic. I feel like this is so dehumanizing. This is such an evil industry that's worth billions of dollars. I think, can't we all say that this is an atrocity and we should do everything we can to save these people and to stop these predators? I don't understand where where the opposing view is. So why would you, why would you get banned? Well, the time I was suspended specifically, I had tweeted out an article, a news article about a law 
it was a, a, a news article from Memphis. I was actually trying to give a survivor a shout out. I thought that the survivor was working on the bill. Um, she actually isn't working on the bill. So joke was triple on me. That day, there was a broad scale ban on the word Memphis. And because the, the article had come from Memphis. So I hadn't broken terms of service. I've never violated terms of service. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really careful about that. Mm-hmm. Uh but other than that, um, my Twitter account is throttled. It is shadow banned. We have evidence of this. We have proof of this. Uh, it happened around the time when I really started speaking out. Um, why I think that I'm censored and sort of on the naughty list, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, it's because there's a lot of money and a lot of very powerful people don't want to see this message get out. Um, but it doesn't dishearten, it doesn't make me disheartened. It makes me push harder, mm-hmm. you know? And it's horrible because it's almost like I wanted to warn you before we sat down for the conversation. Like, cause I, you'll probably get some pushback for talking to me. That's shocking to me. It's shocking. To the me. porn industry does not, the porn industry does not, I'm not talking willing adult entertainers. I think Generally speaking, when I talk to willing adult entertainers, they're like, yeah, we don't want this affiliated with our brand. Yeah, it's disgusting. But when people don't sit to listen to the message, sit to even like listen to what I'm saying, they just think I'm like anti-porn or like anti-willing adult sex work. This is not what this is. And, and, and I feel that if my message threatens you, it says more about what you're doing than what I'm doing. I'm talking about human rights violations. I'm talking about child sexual abuse. I'm talking about child sexual abuse material. I'm talking about non-consensual sex, you know? Um, So, and God forbid, if any of the willing adult entertainers are ever in a situation where they're being, you know, if one of their videos or something is up, you know, up and it's non-consensual, I will certainly fight for them too. I I work with folks that are also willing adult entertainers simultaneously because a lot of survivors um, choose to do, you know, a lot of survivors have only fans, a lot of survivors, you know, and they still mm-hmm. deserve, you know, to be served, you know, and to mm-hmm. be provided aftercare. Mm-hmm. Folks do not want to see this message get out because they make money off this child sexual abuse material. They make money off the non-consensual videos and they make money off the human trafficking. So for me, um, when I see the technology that we have, especially in the, in the private sector, because I feel like that's where, you know, people really thrive and innovation happens a lot faster. Yeah. Um, they use fingerprinting to mm-hmm. get a lot of these materials because when, especially when it comes to uh, child abuse content, um, it's, it's circulated heavily. I want to say um, they've identified over like 75 million unique IP addresses and like the most um, viewed piece of illegal content was like 2 million views, like passed around, you know, through Telegram and WhatsApp and all of these encrypted platforms. They're still able to find them there. Um, obviously, it's proprietary technology and they don't really explain a lot that, you know, that way that they can still have the advantage over these people. Um, so I certainly don't know how it works, but I do know that it's traceable. Um, especially when it's on a non-encrypted platform like Twitter, like Facebook, um, and and like Pornhub. Obviously, Pornhub cleaned up a ton of their videos um, this year, I believe, like the beginning of this year. But it was something like over a hundred. Um, 
I shouldn't say a number because I don't have it exactly. It was a, it was a lot of content that Facebook uh, willingly turned over. They said, hey, we found this yes. on our platform so that they can find um, the origins of it. Yes. But we have the technology to do it. So I don't... Well, there's a little that. bit back that, and by the way, you're like doing great. Like, yeah, I want you to come work with me, girl. You're like really, <laughs> really care. knowledgeable. You might I be the care. most knowledgeable podcaster I've talked to yet about this issue. And I've talked to some awesome people. Like, I mean, I've talked to Dr. Drew twice now. He's like, I feel like I blew his mind. But um, so let's back up a little bit. So are you talking about Microsoft Photo DNA? Because Pornhub claims that they were using Microsoft Photo DNA. Twitter uses Microsoft Photo DNA. Facebook uses Microsoft Reddit. Um, all these platforms use Microsoft Photo DNA, plus other uh, technology that they also have that's unique to them, right? So Facebook- I know that's one of the more popular ones, yeah. So yeah, so Microsoft Photo DNA, unfortunately, well, it was made in 2009. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, uh, it can only detect images that, have already gone through and not so much on videos. So that's a separate uh, technology. And I actually spoke to the creator of Microsoft Photo DNA and hopefully there'll be something new coming soon. So that's something I'm really looking forward to. Um, oh, wow. But once end-to-end encryption comes down, it will be virtually impossible to detect the child sexual abuse material. The fact that technology doesn't exist to track and remove this child sexual abuse material at scale uh, mm-hmm. is really terrifying. Um, you know, the thing, my, my issue is this with like a porn hub with, yeah, I actually think the Facebook does the best and they reported 95% of 65 million images to the national center for missing and exploited children this year, um, through Facebook platforms like messenger, Instagram, and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds horrible, that they reported 95% of 65 million, but actually they're doing the best, right? Right, because they caught it. They caught they're it. They're not pretending it's not there. They're catching They're catching it for the most part. The problem is they're moving and an, an encryption, so it's going to be really difficult. But, um, and I'm not, and I think I'm, it's, it's hard because there's like part of me as a human, as an adult, that's like, yeah, I like the privacy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't want big tech in my business, right? But for child sexual abuse material, this is specifically going to be a really big problem. Um, you know, the, the difficulty with like uh, Pornhub or Twitter is when they're knowingly profiting off the child sexual abuse material after the victim survivors or other folks reach out and say, hey, this is CSAM. This is child sexual abuse material. This is child porn. Please remove it. You know, in the case of John Doe, for instance, or now it's John Doe 1 and jo- John Doe 2 that are suing Twitter. Um, they were 13 years old in the video, um, oh. two male survivors, 13 years old in the video. Um, John Doe one had reached out to Twitter multiple times. It took the Department of Homeland Security. Twitter had his identification. This video was watched over 160,000 times, 2000 retweets on Twitter. Like they were knowingly profiting off this child sexual abuse material. They wrote John Doe one back and said, we are not going to remove it does not violate our terms of service. That's when the Depart- Department of Homeland Security had to step in. It's like. And did they take it down? After, after, I mean, this is, yes, at first they said no. Both young men just turned 18. Just turned wow. 18. So they were 13 in the video. They just turned 18. Twitter would not take this down. So my thing is like, if you're notified that these are children in this video with government ID showing that they're, you know, minors, why are we not taking this down? Why are these platforms consistently uh, 
profiting off of this material. Human trafficking is going to be a little bit harder to prove, you know, but the child sexual abuse materials cut and dry, not even a question, you know, same thing with non-consensual videos as well, you know? So when it came, when that, um, when that first John Doe wrote in, it was a human that had responded, like, was it an auto response? Did he ever actually get in touch with a real person that worked at Twitter? I don't know. Yeah. That's like the hard part too is. I mean, I've seen the transcripts like back and forth, like the written, but I I doubt it was a human. You think that those terms would be flagged though, right? And then like, let's, let's move this. Like someone is saying that this is either um, like rape content, non-consensual content, underage content. You think that those terms would be flagged in the support system to actually go to a real human desk. So it's massive deal. And I think even if it got taken down, you know, people screen recorded, they saved it. That's there forever. And now this poor person has their face all over the internet. Um, and you, you can't ever separate yourself from that. It's like, you're constantly living in that moment. You nailed it. You nailed it. So what's, so like, you can't even put a price on that. Like they're suing, but what is this poor child? Well, so, I mean, Twitter tried to have the case dismissed. Oh, man. And By saying what? What was their argument? Citing Section 230 protection. That they're not responsible for the content that's Correct. on their... Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> they, sure, they sure were very um, effective at removing content that they didn't want on their platform last year. You nailed it. I mean, look, when a logical person hears this stuff, when a logical person hears this stuff, you're like, okay, what's the problem? Like, it's almost like every podcast I'm on is like, okay, but what's the problem? What's the problem? I'm like, (laughs) now now people get why I'm so wild about it all day. I'm like, yeah, what is the problem? And I have met with Twitter corporate. Uh, Well, there's another nuance too. Um, So Jack Dorsey and I were friendly. So I requested meetings and stuff and, um, so this isn't anything that I haven't said to them mm-hmm. either. And they have no, <laughs> they're profiting off of child sexual abuse material. Pornhub profited off child sexual abuse material. Look, I'm not blaming them for the initial acts, right? I'm not mm-hmm. even calling them pedophiles, predators, traffickers. The problem is once they are notified, then they're knowingly profiting off of it. That's mm-hmm. a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I entirely agree. And I'm like, actually, it's a a very unpopular opinion in my industry, but I'm very pro uh, paywall. Like, I don't believe that explicit sexual content should be um, just for free anywhere. I think that there needs to be some kind of um, step to a verify that everyone's consenting, that everyone's of age, and that the consumer is also of age. So obviously, you're going to hope that if they have a credit card that they're 18. Um, obviously, that's not always the case, but it does obviously protect some people from stumbling upon content that they're not necessarily mature enough to uh, to consume. Um, so why 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 is that unpopular opinion? Because they use the slippery slope um, argument that if we get rid of being able to show uh, sexuality or sex on Twitter that we're just going to get banned as an entire industry, that they're going to ban every single porn star, every single sex worker, um, that they're going to make porn illegal, all of these things. And 
I don't know that those things are necessarily related. Um, like for example, Utah is trying to pass a bill right now that would put a filter on any electrical device that's sold within the state. Um, and then you can turn it off, but it's just, it's to protect kids from going onto websites that they shouldn't be on. And everyone in the industry lost their mind. They're like, this is unconstitutional. This is un-American, yada, yada. And everyone's like, Utah's trying to ban porn. And I was like, did you read the article? Because that's not the, it at all. It's, it comes with a filter. So if you give it to your child, you know that they're safer on the internet from places that they shouldn't be. And if you're an adult and you want to consume that content, you just turn the filter off. I actually think that's, why is that a bad idea? And they're automatically like, we're not, um, we're not seen as human and we're being invalidated and our industry is under attack again. And I don't necessarily see that connection. Um, I think, I think it's wonderful that Pornhub now only has verified content. I think it was kind of bullshit when in the beginning they were like, we have human people that are verifying every single video. And I was like, mm, let's back that up really quick because I spend thousands of dollars a month taking my content that I own off of your platform and it wasn't verified. It was, I never sent you in my IDs for that scene or my consent forms for that. I, you know what I mean? Like you don't know anything. It could just have been whatever video. No one's reviewing it. Um, so I think that was a necessary step. But unfortunately, that's one tube site out of hundreds. No one else is following that. Um, I mean, personally, and I've never really said this in any interview, but I feel like it's applicable here. If I was a willing adult entertainer, I would be really pushing and pretty upset with Pornhub and some of these other folks that are not navigating this child sexual abuse material and the human trafficking stuff, non-consensual videos uh, at scale. Uh, because what it does is for willing adult entertainers, hold on, we're about to have a visitor, maybe, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, what it does is it puts folks that are doing it willingly, and this is their chosen profession at risk. You know, if Pornhub's pulled down in an instant, um, that could that could potentially, you know, folks that do that, that do that work willingly for a living um, could put them, I am so sorry. You're fine. Could put them, um, you know, at a danger for losing uh, income, you know, and that's scary. There are a lot of mothers. There's fathers out there that are willing adult entertainers. You know, I, I am shocked sometimes that the uh, willing adult entertainers don't take a bigger stand. Um, sticking to my lip gloss, don't take a bigger stand. But that's that's not uh, really my my primary focus. But for me, I would say like, dang, because what what it does is it. Um, gives an industry that is already legitimized a bad rap. It gives those folks that are anti-porn more of a reason to want to speak out. Um, I don't, I just don't, I'm not with the anti-porn argument because it just, the genie's already out of the bottle. To me, it's like, it's just, it's like splitting hairs. I, I'm not really that, I, I'm not worried about willing adult entertainment. I'm just not. You know, that's like the least of my concerns. Like, can we just get rid of the child porn? Like, that's my concern. Um, also, I feel moving ahead, you know, we'll be dealing with things more along the lines of like CGI, deep fake, you know, um, that's where I'm seeing things headed anyway. 
um, that sort of like virtual reality experience with adult entertainers, you know, I'm not that pressed. I'm not pressed, but I think it would be awesome if folks from that are, um, you know, sex workers that do it willingly, that are willing adult entertainers, if they did speak out and say, yeah, we don't want this in our, like, what is this doing in our, in our space? Um, I don't know. I, I would be mad at Pornhub if I was an adult entertainer, but I'm not. So it's not my battle. Yeah, unfortunately, it's kind of the same company as everyone else, like all the other mainstream. So people that don't have um, alternatives for shooting, they can't really say anything. Otherwise, they're completely out of a job. Um, and again, I don't know why you just wouldn't. I, that was also one of the things that didn't make sense to me. So you had Facebook that turned in millions of videos saying this is here. Um, and it's it's obviously hidden a little bit uh, better because that platform doesn't have just nudity ever, everywhere, right? It's a lot harder to find. And I believe that the messages are like somewhat encrypted. Yeah, um, sometimes. Like, sometimes yeah, the, yeah, different ones. Because yeah, they own multiple but, platforms. So that's across. So when you see that Facebook number, that's across all Facebook owned platforms. So Instagram as well. And yeah, that. that's off everything. Okay. But the point, I guess, I'm where I'm going is it's a lot harder for them to find it there, I think, versus on um, Pornhub where like nudity is accepted. So like you should be filtering and like seeing those things. So, or I'm sorry, again, allergy medicine, my brain's not working. <laughs> it's harder for you to find it on Pornhub because there's so much nudity. Right. Yes. So to say, I want to say they, it was like a handful of cases and they're like, this is all we found in 2019. I'm like, there's no way that's it. Pornhub? There's got to be more. Yeah. So they didn't, they, did so Pornhub reported zero child sexual abuse material to the Canadian authorities or to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children for over 10 years. Uh, they reported zero, which is... Uh, oh, they reported zero. They reported zero. I, now, I could stand corrected because I saw a W5, which is uh, Canada's version of... Um, which is Canada's version of... Uh, what do we call Like 60 Minutes. Uh, okay. They had a slightly different, but it was like very small number. So I have to go back and check because they might have some updated information, some, uh, you know, but as far as I knew, when the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children numbers came out for 2020, they had only reported after and they were cl they claimed under oath that they were using, you know, um, Microsoft Photo DNA and other proprietary tools um, after the uh, Nicholas Kristoff, New York Times, the Children of Pornhub opinion piece came out. That was after that they started reporting. So the number that they did report, which I think was 13,222, which would be across all MindGeek platforms. So all platforms that MindGeek owns, including Pornhub, uh, 13,222 reports. Now, there's another nuance there as well uh, that the number of reports doesn't necessarily equal number of images and videos. Each report can contain any number of images and videos in it. So okay. you could see 13,322. Each report could have contained 5,000 images or 5,000 videos. So we don't know. And that's information that's not publicly available. Um, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children keeps that um, close to the chest of how many exactly came from what platform. So you can do it that way you will. So 
when it comes to moving forward and solving this problem, and obviously we have an obsession of privacy, right? Yeah. We all have Telegram or WhatsApp or Signal. Like these are important for people. But at the same time, it's like, well, at what cost? So it's it seems really difficult to have all of these freedoms and then also be able to solve this problem. And then also when it comes to government regulations, like how much do you want the government to also control over a private company and what they, they can and can't do with their business? So, I mean, again, I'm kind of anti-tube site. I don't love free explicit content out there, but I also don't want someone telling you that you can't do it. Um, and like we mentioned earlier, there were still numbers on, you know, Facebook's companies and Instagram. Like it, just if you could snap your fingers and get rid of tube sites and there's still going to be hundred um, percent a problem. Yeah. So how do we, I don't know, like, where do we, where do we begin when it comes to solving this issue? Well, first talk to your kids, um, mm-hmm. educate your kids, educate the youth and, um, let them know, you know, uh, as far as sending sexually explicit material, having good relationships with children, um, having them have safe people around them. So God forbid, if they're ever in this situation, they have someone to talk to. Um, that's number one. Uh, number two is a really aggressive, updated artificial intelligence that can sweep, that can sweep these platforms and remove it at scale. And then the next would be, uh, you know, for these, these platforms and, you know, different sites, whatever, to have a process, easy reporting process to report child sexual abuse material, non-consensual material. And um, I've seen some folks uh, say, you know, a 24 hour line that survivors can call and say, hey, this is, you know, this is up. Can you please have it removed? Um, I think it would be really intelligent for these platforms to be very aggressive about this. It will only benefit them in the long run because they're going to get sued a lot. Now it's done. You know, Pornhub's being sued, multiple class action lawsuits, multiple class action lawsuits with children, international class action lawsuits, and they're going to keep coming. Um, this is just the beginning of Pornhub, um, of Pornhub getting sued. They are going to keep coming. Same with Twitter. Um, Facebook's also, so, you know, Facebook's also being sold, uh, sued by three minor, uh, survivors of sex trafficking. That case is a little different. A little bit more, those cases are a little bit more different and a little bit more nuanced. But now that survivors are starting to get hip to the fact that they can sue, um, if these platforms are not aggressive, they're going to lose their shirt. So, when that one video that you were saying got shared, uh, viewed over 100,000 times, and how many times was it shared? It was viewed over 160,000 times in the first day, and it was shared over 2,000 times. So all of the people that um, engaged with that content, like that's a felony as well. So are those uh, users being tracked and turned in or are, we ju- are they just focusing on on the platform, like just Twitter? I'm not able to discuss that? that right now. Oh, you can't? Okay. Yeah. But legally though, right, it is to engage with the content or to come across the content and not report it. it I do believe it's a felony, which is why they tell you to be careful when yes. you get some of these Please be careful. Please be careful. Yeah, because Please, if you don't report it, people right think way. that they can screenshot it, and I'm like, oh, that's the worst thing. <laughs> like, don't yeah. ever screenshot the material. Just report. Report to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Report to the platform that you see it on, and please report it to the FBI as well. Mm-hmm. And don't screenshot anything. Um, yeah, there's some things I can't discuss with the John Doe case. 
Oh, so, okay. So are you allowed to say if you're um, like involved with like their defense team or with like maybe as an advisor, is that also? Well, I'm, I'm publicly advocated for John Doe 1 and now I'm publicly advocating for John Doe 2. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, his mother and I have testified uh, in front of members of Congress together as well. I was trafficked on Twitter. So um, there's oh, some wow. crossover there. Okay, so that's why you are so involved with us. I'd be involved in it even if I wasn't trafficked on Twitter. Mm-hmm. John Doe's case, you know, um, a lot of cases have broken my heart over the year. Um, there isn't one survivor, you know, but John Doe's case specifically um, really impacted me in a way that um, I just, it just, for some reason, John Doe one's case and now John Doe, and I'm so grateful he stepped forward, but um really, really impacted me. There was just something there's, I think it was the fact that Twitter wrote back and said that they wouldn't remove the content after review. I think that was really what I was like, okay, okay, game on, let's do it. So that's why I've been extra aggressive about John Doe. And I also, um, I don't think this is a secret. I, I, I'm the one that got the whistleblower. There was a whistleblower as well. I'm the one that that connected the whistleblower to the def- the legal team. Okay. Uh, man, this is giving me goosebumps because it, I just can't help but think as a parent all of the time now in these situations. So that's like the role that I, I kind of um, view everything at. And if I had my child come to me and he's like, there's this video online that has all of these views and the platform won't take it down. I'm like, what do you mean? Maybe you just have to start um, having that person tweet that they want Donald Trump to win and then they'll take their account down. You know what I mean? It's like the things that we choose to focus on, I think are absurd when there's actual like atrocities that are happening that you I mean this is a real about. human rights violation for real this so is- with that with that protection that these platforms have because right now they have the protections of a utility but obviously they're not acting like a utility so it's similar to um, if you have Verizon right and Verizon's not responsible for the phone calls that are being made or the texts that are being made right so you get like, a lot of tax breaks from that a lot of legal protections for that but then at the same time they are acting like just a regular private company because they are censoring things that they um, that they deem worthy I suppose um, so if they were to lose that that right then I guess do they would you see an, an uptick in censorship as well? So this, the, so in 2018, uh, FOSTA-SESTA was signed into effect. And FOSTA-SESTA uh, covers this, like, you know, John Doe and other cases like it, uh, if they're knowingly. So this, there's already the amendment in, in uh, two, Section 230, uh, why they tried to claim Section 230 protection, given the fact that FOSTA-SESTA, they were just trying, they're trying it. It's just a horrible look. It's like, Mm -hmm. just cut the young man a check and fix your platform. But -hmm. instead, they want to fight it, which I think is disgusting. But whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. They could do whatever they want. It's their platform. Um, But there's already the amendment in Section 230 in this particular case. As far as Section 230 goes, I'm not a big, uh, I'm not really a big advocate for or somebody that speaks out. I, I don't have a problem with 230. I mean, I don't think that they should be liable. Like, if you say something mean to me, like, oh, Liza, you're fat and ugly and you haven't seen your barber in a month, <laughs> you know? Like, if you say that, like, I mean, 
I don't think that they should be liable for that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. so there's like lines and especially in this climate and in, in, in this culture, I don't think, you know, the other thing too, is I think people think that I want to like get Twitter canceled or have Twitter come down. I just want them to do the right thing and stop profiting off of human rights violations. I love Twitter. I'd be bummed mm-hmm. if they, if they went down today. You know, I want them to do the right thing. I want them to be the first platform to really change. Um, you know, uh, Pornhub, that's a little bit of a different scenario. I, it's almost like I feel like Twitter still has a chance. I feel like they still have a freaking chance. And I've seen them do a lot of bogus things. They've done a lot of bogus things to me. That's OK. I'm not going to hold it against them. But we need to do the right thing, at least by the kids. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. So do you think um, until like the AI catches up to being able to find this content, do you think that getting rid of explicit content is an easier path for them to go? So then it's just none of it's available. Or do you think that there's still going to be a way for people to be posting this kinds of. um, It's a really good question. Nobody's ever asked me that question. Getting rid of the willing adult content would be the fast, fastest and easiest way to remove all child sexual abuse material and human trafficking from Twitter or, you know, Pornhub. But like you said before, it won't solve the problem. It'll be putting a bandaid on it. Uh, my solutions to this problem that I push for constantly have a more human centered focus. I just want everybody to be safe. I don't want the willing adult entertainers to not be able to feed their family or God forbid. Um, one thing I've talked about a lot is that if we pull down these big sites, like we saw with Backpage, when Backpage went down, which was a cesspool, like I was trafficked on Backpage. You know what I mean? I know there was folks that made a living off Backpage. Cool, whatever. I was trafficked on Backpage. That's my experience. Um, you know, um, we did see a spike in online human trafficking, things like that. We have to be very conscientious when we just pull down everything all at once. What we don't want to do is increase human trafficking and exploitation. So if your main primary source of income is coming from these, like, let's say like you're using Twitter as your main source to hustle, right? Um, if your hustle's taken down instantly, that leaves you at a higher risk to being trafficked. That's what we don't want. We want these platforms to do the right thing without destroying more lives. So the best thing to do is start with removing the human rights violations first. Then we can talk about the other stuff. But my goal would be to not have to remove the, the willing adult entertainers stuff too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's obviously like best case scenario. Best case. That's, I, I hope they do that. Yeah, what's interesting to me, um, because there are some organizations that are very anti-poor and very yes. anti-sex work, and they tie it to these humanitarian issues. And I think that they're vastly different things. And if you kind of compare it to what's happening with like the drug wars right now um, or what's been happening with the drug wars, um, it's almost like when you make a thing illegal, and this obviously doesn't apply to children because that's always illegal. That's never okay. Obviously kids can't consent, but I'm just talking about adults. When you make things illegal is you tend to make those things a lot more violent and a lot more underground. Yes. uh, I was listening to uh, Johan Hari and he has the book Lost Connections and he focuses a lot on um, drugs, addiction and depression. And he was explaining, um, he was making the comparison to alcohol and he's like, well, you don't see 
uh, violent uh, gangsters like Smirnoff and Bud Light going at each other because they're competitors. You used to see that with Al Capone when it was illegal. And that's why you see all of this happening with um, with the cartel is because it's illegal. If something happens, they can't call the police. And well, maybe in Mexico, but you can't call the police and say, hey, I need help because so-and-so just like broke into my shop. Um, so you start creating the thing that you're trying to avoid. And I'm I can't help but relate that to sex work. It's by making it illegal for consenting adults um, to kind of do what they want behind closed doors. You are kind of giving the power to these traffickers because there's no other there. Obviously there are some people that are doing it above ground a little bit, but you are making it harder, I think. And then you're. So I don't, uh, yeah, I don't. um, Unfortunately, you know, I, I, it's not that I don't care. It's just mm-hmm. I like to just stick to, uh, you know, child sexual abuse, human trafficking, human rights violations. Um, you know, if willing adult sex workers want to advocate for, you know, uh, whatever they want to advocate for, that's fine. Uh, to me, it's not really um, I get what you're saying. I, I, mm-hmm. I would prefer we, we focus on uh, the human rights violations first. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I feel. I get what you're saying. I mean, listen. Prohibition's never worked. Just so you're saying, it's it's always right. increased it. Um, the war on drugs was a complete failure. I think mm-hmm. what we found is that uh, meeting people where they're at, and um, also too, I'm very like, I'm very like, uh, you know, libertarian. Very Michael Malice. You know, I'm actually past libertarian. I I don't even like to say libertarian. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm a very like Michael Malice thinking as far as political stuff goes. Like that's but we always draw the line at human rights violations. Right. Mm-hmm. And that I feel like everybody can agree on, like even, you know, anybody, everybody. And the thing about the drug trade is, you know, um, uh, we lost it. We lost the war on drugs. We had to start doing things a little differently and started doing harm reduction. And that is kind of what we do um, sometimes when we, when we talk to survivors. So like in my particular case, harm reduction worked really well in getting me out once and for all against my so abuser. What's harm reduction? So harm reduction, when you talk about, uh, you know, drug folks that are struggling with addiction, you start off and it's sort of, um, I don't know, I guess it's, it's a little different, but it's like, you know, you start off with like, okay, do you have clean, clean, uh, you know, needles to use with, do you have somewhere okay. clean to do this? You know, are you, you know, you, you lower the risk of, of something deadly to happen because if the person's dead, there's no chance in coming back. Right. Mm -hmm. So you just lower the risk of dying. So, you know, when we talk about harm reduction with, um, you know, human trafficking, if you go back, do you have a safety plan to leave? Does someone else know where you are? You know, um, it just, we go through, we basically play the movie forward and just make sure it's as less deadly as possible. Until that survivor is in a space where they're ready to choose to leave once and for all. Yeah, I guess that's kind of the connection I was trying to make. It's like, <laughs> like we, like we said earlier, it's if the problem with sting operations is that you are arresting the girl, which doesn't make sense to me at all, especially if she's a victim, um, and especially if she's in a dangerous situation. So now you're punishing her for being a victim, and that doesn't. Well, then you also have to think what that does to someone's life, too. Once that's on Mm -hmm. your record, like, Mm -hmm. so then when you come out and you're like, okay, 
I don't want to do this lifestyle anymore, or this isn't the lifestyle for me anymore. Then you have that charge on your record. Like, so then you go into Walmart or Subway or, you know, somewhere to get a job or to drive a bus or whatever you decide you want to do, right? You have that charge on your record. So then survivors get into a spot where they're like, even if they want to get out, there's things holding them back. And right. um, it just creates a really horrible pattern. Yeah, I'm not big on stings unless it's minors, unless it's a case where um, you're trapping people that are trying to purchase minors. Then I'm like, please get those creeps off the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like the most proactive thing that I guess the average person can do too is just, like you said, preparing your kids, talking to your kids. And I think a lot of people are uncomfortable because they don't know what to say or maybe they don't have the resources or they just maybe live in a place where they think that this is never going to happen to someone that they know. Um, but I think the best thing you could do is prevention always regardless when it comes to keeping yes. yourself safe and your family safe. Um, do you have like any favorite resources that you guide people to for, for prevention? It depends on the age. Mm-hmm. Uh, it definitely depends on the age. Um, it, there's, I've seen some, so for really young kids, there's some cartoons available that talk about, you know, different dangers. There's, there's different books you can purchase. Um, a lot of the organizations that are like more national organizations have tools that you can walk through with your kids. Um, you know, I'm kind of thinking about doing some stuff that's aimed for a little bit because a lot of the podcasts that I do are aimed at adults. I think it'd be really cool to like have podcasts that are aimed a little bit more at a younger, for a younger demographic would that really go through and explain things, but there are tools and resources out there. It just depends on the age. As far as I'm concerned, if, if the youth, if the youth that you're talking to is over the age of 10, they are going to see and hear it all. Anyway, a lot of these youth, especially the preteens and teenagers know what a blowjob is. They know it's, you know what I mean? You're not, you're not, um, you're not coming up with anything they haven't heard. I, I was a father reached out to me the other day and said that he had watched one of my podcasts with his teenage daughter. Cause she, unfortunately both of his teenage daughters were being groomed um, preteen and teen um, one specifically. And uh, he watched one of my podcasts with, I was doing it with a comedian, Chrissy Marr. Or I should say, like, oh, yeah. just entertainer. And she's really edgy. I was like, oh, my gosh, she watched that with her teenager, you know? like, <laughs> But, um, you know, she started crying. She, she was transparent about what was going on after that. She related to it. So I was like, okay, maybe there's something there. So I'm kind of thinking about maybe making something for, for younger folks that's a little bit, I don't know, more edgier. But trust me, these, these kids, they already know what's going on. Talk to your freaking kids. You know, the, the, our United States government has the blue campaign. The, the blue campaign has some material for, for parents too. Okay. Yeah. I'm not familiar with that one. It's not my favorite because I kind of think it's a little corny. I think that's part of, I, I don't know, as I'm kind of getting into my own like footing a little bit, I'm just trying to like, I feel like a lot of the educational tools are kind of corny. Like mm-hmm. it's like, if I was a teenager, would I pay it? Like, I would be like, think that was lame, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it's probably trying to find a line between like educating them realistically and not scaring the shit out of them so that they can't function. I think that's also probably a little bit confusing to navigate. 
Um, my dad was a cop. So I like probably like three years old, I was having these conversations. <laughs> he was going to let you slide. Yeah. He's like, just so you know, the world is not Disneyland. And these are the things to look out for. So Sometimes when I'm talking to kids, I say like, you know, I'll talk to them and I'll be like, you know, in case any of your friends, you know, in case any of your friends say anything like this, so you kind of turn them into a helper. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let your friends know if this is happening, they could come talk to me. Um, make it's not it's not necessarily scaring them, but it's also opening the conversation, showing that you're cool and mm-hmm. that that door is open in case. So it's it's sort of a bittersweet in a way. It's like, OK, the world's trash. <laughs> the world's trash. There's a lot of predators out there, but. If somebody trash comes in your comes in your world, you can talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with your podcast, you were mentioning earlier that you were having um, survivors on, which I think is amazing. I think there's something that you can take away from from your experience that a statistic isn't isn't going to provide the same kind of effect um, yeah. or, or someone who's advocating without experiencing it. Like you can see like this living, breathing person. Um and I don't know, I think it just hits a little bit different. Um, you also said that you were going to have um, some of the trap, like, was it accused traffickers or like confirmed traffickers? Uh, convicted. Convicted. Yeah. So That's the deal, so, so <laughs> yeah. So um, my podcast, which this is wild. I got to spit out this gum. I've been wanting to spit out this gum, but it's like, I have nothing to spit it into. And I, feel like more, <laughs> I don't want to break the flow, but I'm like, okay, hold on. I got um. <laughs> um so so the idea for my podcast listen to how crazy this is you know I started so when I first started doing interviews um until very recently I was just streaming on my phone like I would do all my my interviews on my phone um or at the office and uh cuz I didn't have a computer I didn't have internet I had no equipment I had nothing and finally, some folks decided to do a fundraiser because advocates don't make a lot of money. <laughs> we don't make we don't make anything. Um, but uh, some my friends did a fundraiser and got me the equipment. So actually, I'm streaming right now on this uh, computer that they fundraised for me. I was like so touched. It still like kind of brings it makes me emotional a little bit. But um, because I said I wanted to do a podcast, so the idea for the podcast is interview survivors of, you know, uh, human trafficking, sexual assault, uh, hopefully some survivors of domestic violence as well. And, um, and then convicted, convicted abusers as well, pimps, Mm -hmm. pedophiles and traffickers. So what's the angle um, on the ladder? So are you just maybe trying to get like an inside scoop as to how they think and operate in order to maybe like help, um, bring awareness to that for like law enforcement and these private sectors, uh, I guess, because most people are like, let's not talk to those people at all. They're right. And- well, um, our, well, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. Right. So uh, most people are so um, there's a lot there. So first, the first sort of idea for it was that there is, there are survivors that are abusers as well or abusers that are survivors as well. I served my first survivor that was a convicted abuser and he was 13 years old in a lockdown facility.
for sexual offenders. He's also a survivor of human trafficking. I come from the school of thought that um, that two things can be true at once. And that even though he's a convicted abuser, um, he still deserved healing and aftercare as a survivor as well. Um, I tend to be a little bit more compassionate towards uh, abusers and people hate that. Um, it's, it's, it's a des I'm desperately trying to understand why these crimes happen in the first place. Unless you go to the source, we won't fully understand. Only an abuser can fully understand the thought process, what their life was like leading up to the crime, and uh, what tools they use to groom and manipulate victims. They will, I feel, and I could be wrong, but I feel that they will be the best at explaining it. When we can start to unpack those nuances, uh, we can hopefully prevent it from happening in the first place. Mm -hmm. My first interview is scheduled to be with Teresa J. Helm. She is a public survivor of uh, Jeffrey Epstein and Maxwell as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's going to be a powerful episode. Yeah, I'm... Uh, well, I'm already nervous because, well, number one, I never thought I'd be like interviewing people. You know what I mean? Like what? But, um, but I did an interview with her and, uh, Dr. Drew the other day and I was not, I did not handle it well because we're, she and I are very close, um, friends. So I did not handle it well. I, I was crying while she was talking. So, um, my hope is that I can do, uh, her story, uh, Justice, I'm really interested um, in talking to her about the grooming process. She was groomed by multiple women. I really want to unpack in depth what that process was like, um, not focus on the abuse specifically. Mm -hmm. I think that's important too, because especially I think if it's coming from a woman, it might be harder to pick up on those, um, those red flags, because I think we tend to let our guard down. Yes. Um, yeah, you're like, well, she's not going to overpower me. And she's, she gets it, right? Like she's probably had similar experiences. So she's on my team. Right. So I think that sometimes maybe women can be the worst ones because you don't have that biological guard go up. Like, ooh, got it. someone who's bigger, stronger, more powerful than me. Maybe I should be on my toes a little yeah. bit more. I know for me, that's definitely, definitely the case. But I love that you're saying that you do have compassion for these people. I think that's such a powerful part for people to try to come to grips with when it comes to healing. Um, we're all people, no matter the most evil thing we've done. I think everyone is a person and has a story. And I think an unfortunate reality is a lot of people that are um, like predators or doing these things have also been victims as well. So it's like, if we can stop that cycle from happening, like that's when you have real change and you're not going to get to real change by just hate, like blindly hating anybody, no. no matter what the atrocity is, you have to be able to see them as human to solve the problem. So I think that's huge on your part, especially because of the path that you've been on. Um, so I hope that you give yourself a lot of credit because that is, that is really massive. It's a, like people can spend their whole life trying to, to even get to that analytical point, let alone actually encompassing it and living it and starting a freaking podcast and talking to these people's these people. So I really, really hope that you know you give yourself some love. That's huge. Thanks. Uh, I mean, 
you know, I, I look at it as like, I'm willing to see my own faults. Like I'm not perfect either. I mean, Mm -hmm. by no means have I created a human rights, you know, inflicted a human rights violation on a child, but I'm by no means perfect. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it was really the child, uh, that had me sort of see that dual world Mm -hmm. that those things are possible. And, um, also in my own, and and, it, and I don't push other survivors to feel this way either. Like mm-hmm. survivors, any survivors out there that are listening, this is your journey. Do you mm-hmm. don't follow my, you know, this isn't, I'm not, I'm unique in this way. Like if, mm-hmm. if survivors hate these people, I get it. Trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I am more interested in getting to the root of the problem than I am having my own feelings about whatever, you know, people are doing or whatever, you know, um, I just, I really like looking at my own negative spots as well. Like I'm pretty capable of doing some horrible things. You know what I mean? Like, let's keep it all the way real. I think we live in a world, you know, with this cancel culture and everything where everybody's willing to point the finger, but unwilling to point the finger back at themselves. So Mm -hmm. I'm like willing to say, you know, I have some real trash qualities. Um, Mm -hmm. I've had points in my life where I've done really horrible things and, um, there by the grace of God go, I, I could be locked up and I have gone to jail, not for that, but you know, I mean, I have gone to jail a couple of times. And, um, so it's just a, just a different grace and compassion. I mean, brutal honesty, if I could, I would interview my own abusers, but because they're not, um, convicted, I, I will, won't do that. Mm-hmm. I wish I could mm-hmm. It'd be interesting. Well, Yes. Hopefully one day then, you know, the justice circles round, um, man. So can you give, um, our listeners some ways that they can support your, your projects, follow you, stay up to date with all of this very important work that you're doing, um, and just support you in any way? Yeah. My Twitter is at Eliza Blue at E-L-I-Z-A-B-L-E-U. And then my locals community which you should think about checking out Locals. Locals is the freaking most amazing thing ever. It's a content creator platform that is free speech, censorship free. They don't sell your data and folks can donate to you there. It's kind of like a Facebook and Patreon sort of, sort of mixed. Um, Bridget Fetessy is on there. Michael Miles is on there. Dave Rubin's on there. Everybody's on there now. D- Dr. Drew, like everybody's on there. I can't even name everybody that's on there. But um but uh, I'm uh, Eliza, E-L-I-Z-A dot locals dot com. So it's Eliza dot locals dot com. You can donate to me there. That's awesome. Uh, I always let folks know uh, if, if this is a movement that you want to get involved in, please think about uh, donating your time, talent or treasure locally to a survivor safe house. that's close by you. If you have a skill that I know everyone listening has a special skill set that was unique to them. When they were born, if you have a special skill set, please consider donating your time, talent, or treasure to the survivor space. We need it. Call up your local safe house. There's a directory on the human trafficking hotline website that will tell you where the closest safe house is. Um, ask, you know, hey, what do you need? You know, if if you cut hair, find out if any survivors are getting ready to do interviews. You know, if you have a podcast, think about covering this topic. You know, there are tons of ways to get involved. Tons of ways to, to beyond just donating, you know, ask if they need summer clothes, if they need back to school stuff for any kids, you know, there's, there's tons of ways to get involved and then always go to the human trafficking hotline website for the most accurate up-to-date information. They also confront conspiracy theories or myths, 
myth um, on their website as well. So if you're ever in question of something, whether or not there's legitimacy to it, um, the human trafficking hotline covers that as well. Wonderful. And I will, um, I'll keep an eye out for your podcast. Yay. Hopefully early, hopefully June. Very good stuff. Yeah. You're after our birthday. Yeah. 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 Well, happy early birthday. Happy early birthday to you. And I really, really appreciate you having me on because, um, it, it always means so much to me when anybody that's in the industry is willing to have these conversations. Uh, it's like that to me has been one of the most moving things out of everything. It's, oh, of course. Seriously. Yeah. So, and I see, I see you out here shining girl. I was loving your podcast <laughs> this weekend. So I'm, I look forward to, and hopefully, hopefully as things continue, have you interviewed God? What's his name? God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Girl, I was seeing you. I was seeing you. I was like, isn't he the best? He's the man. I love that guy. He's the, yeah. oh my gosh, this is funny. And then I know we got to go, but this is funny. So when I was getting ready to do Dr. Drew the first time, uh, I, Dr. Drew had just had on Godsad. I think Godsad was like right before me. And then right before him, I think was, uh, Michaela Peterson, Dr. Jordan Peterson's daughter. Mm-hmm. And like all these geniuses, like all these doctors, everything. I was like, I was so intimidated. I called my best friend. I was like, dude, I'm like after God's side. Like, I'm, he's like a genius. Like, <laughs> I can't go on after these people. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, <sighs> so I was like trying to look at all my facts. <laughs> yeah, he can be intimidating, but I think it's important. <sighs> it's important to like find your own self-worth, right? Like you're here for a reason. You have a platform for a reason. I mean, you're on the freaking Dr. Drew show for a reason. Um, yeah. yeah. So definitely don't take away too much credit from you. You're doing very important, powerful stuff. And I know you have to be changing life. So you have to somehow maybe start doing like a gratitude journal or maybe some positive. Oh, I do. I'm grateful. It's just like, to me, I'm just like, holy Toledo, like, yeah. You know, I, you know what I mean? It's just like, damn. no, I totally do. But I, yeah, I see you're doing good stuff. Thanks girl. I appreciate it. And I'm grateful. And thank you for having me on. Of course. And I would love to have you back too. Once you get that podcast rolling. Girl, you, all right, good. All right. Yeah. I'm here for it. I'll talk to you later. Awesome. Bye girl. That's it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review and don't forget to hit that subscribe button also share this podcast with a friend. It helps my podcast grow and I really